Chapter Thirteen of the Forgery by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. With his arm linked in that of Charles Marston, Mr. Winkworth, such as I have described him, walked on towards the city, and much did he seem to marvel at all he saw by the way. It was not, indeed, that he was unacquainted with London but cities as well as people change their dress only with this difference that they very often grow smarter as they grow older the new garb of his old friend however was apparently not at all to mr winkworth's taste he commented on all he saw with splenetic causticity declaring that the good old brick houses of swallow street with their plain brown faces were infinitely preferable to the latham plaster edifices of regent street and waterloo place which he pronounced an insult to architecture and a hodgepodge of every sort of enormity then again the macadamized streets excited his indignation they had not yet been paved with wood or heaven knows what he would have said of them but as they were he declared that their sole object must be to wet the feet and splash the apparel of the lieges of the land my dear sir he said this is true modern reform and improvement it is a good specimen of the customs and legislation of the age everything that the wisdom of ten or twelve centuries and the experience of whole races of men have devised and pronounced good is swept away knocked down chopped up simply for the sake of change and to show that we are wiser than our ancestors in my young days these good streets of london were paved with large firm solid lumps of granite you could step across from stone to stone quietly easily and dryly they wanted little or no repair except when some villainous water company chose to pick up the stones in order either to carry a pipe to or cut it off from some of the adjacent houses if you ever come to drive a cab or a curricle through the streets winkworth said charles marston you will find it much more pleasant to roll over mr macadam than over those same jolting blocks of granite you talk of heaven forbid that i ever should commit such a mad action replied the old gentleman still striding on with his long legs and his somewhat rounded body and shoulders not at all unlike a hen turkey in the moulting season but that which strikes me as the most curious part of the whole process is that you people of the present day think you are advancing all the time and call your operations progress when in fact like the crab you are going backwards here you have very nearly reduced the streets of london to the same state in which they were left by king lud whose name very appropriately rhymes to mud i suppose all things do go in a circle answered charles marston like that wheel which you see turning round yet the wheel in turning round rolls the carriage forward and so i suppose the gyrations of society help on the great machine as bad an illustration as ever was given exclaimed mr winkworth one which would break down at the first turn good heaven what a quantity of plate glass you must admit that that is at all events a great improvement rejoined the younger gentleman compared with the small dingy panes which even i can recollect 
you can have nothing to say against the plate glass i think a whole volume said mr winkworth in the first place the shops and houses must be as hot as cucumber beds this window lets the whole sun in you forget you are not in india in arabia or on the shores of the red sea replied his companion but what more in the next place continued mr winkworth every stone-throwing urchin discontented snob or butcher's boy with a tray on his shoulder has two or three hundred pounds at his mercy a chimney-pot falling a flower-pot overturning or almost any other accident you please can pick your pocket of much more than it may be convenient to lose in the shape of glass then look at that jeweller's shop think what a temptation it must be to a poor rogue to pop his hand through and seize all those diamonds and pearls upon my life it is worth the risk of transportation then again as a matter of calculation my dear lad i don't know what is the price of plate glass now but i am very sure that three or four thousand pounds would not buy the shop-front of that mercer who pays for it sir who pays for it why you and i and everybody who wants a silk handkerchief a dozen of gloves or a pair of silk stockings now what i want is a silk handkerchief not plate glass and i do not see why i should be obliged to contribute my quota to enable harry thompson or john jenkins or any one else to cover his wares with a plate of stuff only fit for a looking-glass as dear as gold and as frail as a dancing-girl charles marston laughed outright that last part of your speech my dear winkworth he said is worthy of my uncle scriven then he must be a wiser man than you seem to think him rejoined mr winkworth with a smile i never said he was not wise replied charles marston oh no he is a very wise man in his generation neither do i think he would carry the matter as far as you do nor object to any one but himself buying as much plate glass as he pleases perfectly certain that if he mr scriven is obliged to pay something additional in his bill on account of that commodity he will find means to make the possessor pay him back with interest if they have any further dealings together loving nephew said mr winkworth dryly pray are you as affectionately fond of all your other relations nay that is hardly fair replied charles marston you know quite well winkworth how dearly i love my good aunt fleetwood and my noble generous-hearted father but i will tell you one thing that is the contrast between his conduct feelings and thoughts and those of my good calculating uncle which makes the society of the latter so very unpleasant to me it is all prejudice i dare say answered mr winkworth in a morose tone you love your father doubtless because it is customary piety piety you know marston it would never do not to love one's father and then you hate your uncle because he has got the whip-hand of you you are very much mistaken replied charles marston sharply my uncle has not the whip-hand of me in any way thanks to my father's generosity and confidence i am as independent of him as that chimney-sweeper <laughs> said the old man but what has your uncle done why nothing perhaps that the world would blame answered charles 
but nothing that I ever heard of that any man of heart and mind would praise. In that very business of the poor Haley's, which I was telling you about last night, he persecuted Henry in the most relentless manner. The bankers who lost the money, and were the real parties interested, did not show half the eagerness after the poor fellow's blood. "'That might proceed in your uncle from a natural love of justice,' said Mr. Winkworth. "'Pooh!' exclaimed Charles Marston, with an impatient look. "'Did he pay the bankers the money?' demanded his companion. "'Not one penny,' rejoined Charles. "'But let us get into some sort of vehicle, or we shall never arrive at the city.' And calling one of the street conveyances, they proceeded on their way. As the reader is already aware, Charles Marston did not find his uncle at his counting-house, and having nothing further to detain him in a place which he abhorred, he drove back again at once to his aunt's house, leaving Mr. Winkworth to finish his business in the great centre of the world's commerce, and rejoin him as soon as it was possible. Charles Marston found Lady Fleetwood's drawing-room already well tenanted. His cousin Maria had arrived earlier than she had been expected. Not ten minutes after her appearance, Lady Anne Mellant had presented herself, and she was followed closely by Colonel Middleton. A crowd of gratulations and welcomes poured warmly upon Charles. It is at such first meetings after long absence that, to the eyes of the observant and experienced in human character, the deeply concealed feelings of the heart peep out in little traits. Had the eyes of Lady Fleetwood been of any great use to her, she would have seen the ruin and destruction of one of her favourite schemes upon the cheek of Maria Monckton, and in the eyes of Lady Mellant. The former was nearest to the door by which Charles entered. She received him with every appearance of affection, returned his embrace warmly, and expressed, with no lack of tenderness, the pleasure she felt at seeing him again but not the slightest change of colour in the cheek betrayed any deeper emotion. No quivering of the lip, no trembling of the frame, showed the agitation inseparable from love. Not so Lady Anne Mellant. She sat still as stone, while Charles was welcomed by his cousin. But a ray of joyful light, bright and pure and radiant, poured forth from her eyes, while her cheek became very pale, and her lips parted with a sigh that would not be suppressed. She was evidently a great deal agitated, but with a degree of command over herself, which circumstances rendered more habitual with her than people generally believed, she overcame the emotion in a moment, and by the time the greeting of Maria was over, she was quite prepared to resume the gay and sparkling levity with which she often covered deeper feelings. "'Do not come near me, Charles Marston,' she said, as the young traveller approached. "'I am determined not to speak to you. I cast you off. I abandon you. If I were a rich grandfather, I would cut you off with a shilling.' But at the same time she held out her hand to him, and it trembled as he took it. "'Did you not promise to write to me continually?' she asked. "'And to tell me of all your adventures? For I was quite sure you would get into all sorts of scrapes.' and be delightfully near losing your life a hundred times and now tell me sir have you written to me a single word for six months i wrote you two long letters the last not three months ago replied charles marston and you never condescended to answer either because i never received them 
replied Lady Anne. But you will lay it all upon postmasters, of course. You shall see the record and the dates in my journal, little infidel, said Charles Marston in a low tone. And then he added aloud, But I did even more than all this. I was impudent enough to write to your merry old guardian, Sir Thomas Wickham, to ask him for your address. And what did he say? What did he say? exclaimed Lady Anne, laughing. Something very funny, I am sure. He told me that he was not an astronomer, replied Charles Marston, and could not at all calculate the transit of Venus, adding, in less figurative language, that he could not tell me where you might happen to be, as he had never known for two hours consecutively in his life, but that, if he might venture a supposition, your ladyship was probably looking for me somewhere in Palestine or Crim Tartary. My ladyship was doing nothing of the kind, answered Lady Anne. But there is Colonel Middleton, exceedingly anxious to say civil things to you, while I should say nothing but what is uncivil, at least till you have done penance, so go and speak to him. The greeting between the two friends was very warm, and while it took place, Lady Anne's eyes were fixed upon Charles Marston's countenance with a keen and scrutinising glance. As the secrets of all hearts are, of course, in the bosom of him who writes their history, I may very well aver that Lady Anne was anxious to discover whether Charles Marston was really as unconscious of the identity of Colonel Middleton and Henry Haley as he appeared to be. But there was nothing in any part of his demeanour which could induce her to suppose that he entertained even a suspicion of the truth. "'These men are strange beings,' she said to herself as she gazed. Here are two girls who discover a fact at once, and an old woman who becomes very much puzzled and very doubtful, evidently, for beloved Aunt Fleetwood is clearly on thorns at this very moment with doubt and curiosity, and yet quick, too rapid Charles Marston jumps over the truth, and lights a hundred yards beyond. Upon my life I think women are creatures of instinct more than anything else although i do not know that it is a compliment to their understanding to suppose they share a gift peculiarly characteristic of beasts the welcome was succeeded by general conversation and general conversation being the most tedious thing upon the face of the earth to all but the persons engaged in it and very often to them likewise there can be no necessity for repeating it here Though the sweetest temper woman in the world, Lady Fleetwood was in a mood for fretting herself, and, to say the truth, circumstances wonderfully assisted her. In the first place she was evidently one too many. The party divided itself, naturally, into a quadrille without her, but it divided itself not according to her taste. Had Charles Marston attached himself to the side of his cousin, and his friend Colonel Middleton devoted all his attention to Lady Anne, she would have borne the awkward fact of her own superfluity with the utmost meekness and patience. But, very perversely, they chose to do quite the reverse of all this. Charles, in the window, carried on with Lady Anne Mellant what seemed to his good aunt a regular flirtation, while Maria was left entirely to the attentions of Colonel Middleton. Still, as the reader may suppose, no four persons could have been more perfectly contented with their position than these four, could Lady Fleetwood have been contented to let them alone, 
and not try to arrange matters better but she first joined in the conversation of one party and then interrupted that of another taking care to choose the exact moment when something of importance was to be said or some word of affection to be spoken which was most willing to hide itself from listening ears at length however mr winkworth was announced and the arrival of a stranger put out all the former combinations advancing into the room with one hand behind his back and his hat in the other he made a formal sliding bow all round till his eye rested upon charles marston at the end of the line and the latter advanced to introduce him to the rest though gay frank and bluff as we have seen where he was intimate mr winkworth was clearly very formal and ceremonial amongst strangers but yet there was a certain degree of old-fashioned courteousness in his manner which perfectly suited the notions of lady fleetwood the very scrape of his left foot upon the carpet as he made his exceedingly decided bow and the little expletives with which he seasoned his replies savoured of that dignified stateliness which even within her own memory was the distinctive quality of the old court you have been a long time in india i think mr winkworth she said looking rather too curiously at his sallow complexion madam i fear it is written on my countenance he replied with another low bow but i have as you say been a good deal in india and i learn from your nephew that my old friend marston is your brother-in-law lady fleetwood was delighted to hear that mr winkworth was an old friend of her sister maria's husband and she soon engaged her visitor in giving her a full statement of all he knew concerning mr marston in india which was certainly well calculated to be gratifying to her ears it proved also a seasonable diversion in favour of the lovers in the other part of the room for it occupied all the excellent lady's attention and prevented her from attempting to make them comfortable the announcement that charles marston's carriage was at the door about ten minutes after his companion's first appearance put an end to the explanations he was giving to lady anne and the two gentlemen departed upon their charitable expedition leaving henry still by maria's side one gentleman amongst three ladies is but small provision but colonel middleton seemed in no degree inclined to depart and for a minute or two lady anne was kind enough to make a diversion in his favour by going over and occupying the attention of lady fleetwood how maria and he took advantage of this movement it is not for me to say certain it is they talked in a very low voice for some minutes till lady anne suddenly rose as if to depart and then maria took a liberty with her aunt's house which she would have done without the slightest hesitation where no deep feelings were concerned but which now from some cause or another called the colour somewhat warmly into her cheek saying aloud will you not dine with us to-day colonel middleton my aunt i am sure will be very happy to see you before henry could answer or the little sort of agitated consideration of pros and cons which seized upon lady fleetwood could resolve itself into anything like form and shape lady anne held up her finger exclaiming remember you are engaged to me sir for to-night at least to-morrow i will give you up to lady fleetwood with all my heart maria certainly did think her young friend very strange and perhaps felt a little mortified it was but a transitory emotion however 
but it was sufficiently strong to cause Henry's answer to escape her, and the next moment, while he had turned to Lady Fleetwood to answer with thanks the invitation, which she cordially seconded the moment it was declined, Lady Anne, crossing the room, laid her hand upon Maria's arm, saying in a whisper, "'Trust me, dear girl, trust me. I am neither a flirt nor a coquette, whatever you may think.' "'Indeed, I think you neither, Anne, though perhaps a little strange,' Maria Monkton replied, and with a gay laugh and a nod of her head, Lady Anne Mellant ran out of the room, leaving Henry with Maria and Lady Fleetwood. There we also must leave him, dear reader, for the time, to follow Charles down to Frimley, and though the journey was not a very long one, and the stages were short and easy, even in those days, merely from London to Hounslow, from Hounslow to Egham, from Egham to Bagshot, and from Bagshot to Frimley, passing by the Golden Farmer, and stopping at the White Hart, I should undoubtedly abridge the way by stepping over the whole country, after the fashion of the pair of compasses, with which one measures distances on a map, were it not for one peculiarity which must be pointed out. The old road to Southampton, and a great many other places, for some distance beyond Frimley, runs only through two counties, and those metropolitan counties too, first Middlesex, and then Surrey. And yet perhaps, were you to look for any thirty miles throughout all England which comprise more wasteland than any other thirty miles, you would have to pitch upon these in the immediate vicinity of the capital. Only take the names I have given above, and add the word heath, or common, to them, and you have at least fifteen miles of waste out of the thirty. Hounslow Heath, Egham Heath, Bagshot Heath, Frimley Common. Over all these they rolled as fast as two good horses and a gay postillion could manage to make them, and about half-past six o'clock they reached the spot where they had seen poor Rebecca Haley two nights before. The carriage was stopped, and out they got, as near the hovel as possible, and then, wandering down the little path by the side of the swampy stream, smothered with moss, they made their way to the door. It was closed, but not locked, and Charles Marston, without the ceremony of knocking, lifted the latch and went in. There was but one tenant in the place, and that was the boy, Jim but the poor fellow's face and manner no more displayed that calm good-humoured patient steadfast opposition to adversity and sorrow which they had so lately shown he sat by the fireless hearth and wept why what's the matter my lad asked charles and where is your old friend bessie they have taken her away replied the boy and i am left here alone taken her away taken her away said mr winkworth following his young friend who took her away if your story charles be quite correct i do not see who can have any right to take her away who was it took her away jim oh he had right enough i dare say answered the boy at least he seemed to have for he ordered about him quite free and the people did just what he liked and when i asked him what was to become of me he said whatever might happen he had nothing to do with that he would have been more civil i think if he had no right i can't tell that replied mr winkworth who was occasionally given to moralize as the reader may have perceived wrong is often a very uncivil thing but what was he like was he an old man or a young one 
younger than you are a good bit replied the boy but older than he is a good bit and he pointed to charles marston further questions elicited that the person who had carried away poor miss hayley was a gentleman between forty and fifty years of age tall and thin with grey hair but no whiskers he had come down in a carriage the boy said having a servant with him and together they had put poor bessie into the vehicle whether she would or not she seemed to know him however he added and called him by his name and was very much afraid of him she cried and sobbed very much too in answer to another question the lad stated that he had forgotten the name which his poor old friend had given to the gentleman the description is uncommonly like my uncle scriven said charles marston that's it that's it cried the boy eagerly that is what she called him i remember now i'll swear that my dearly beloved aunt fleetwood has been at the bottom of this said charles with her excellent intentions i'll answer for it if she has told my uncle all about our having found the poor old lady here and tried to persuade him to do something for her thus he has learnt all about it and for some reason of his own has come and carried her away but i will have this affair investigated to the bottom quite right my dear boy if you do not run your head against sundry stone walls in so doing replied mr winkworth but you should always remember charles marston that you have got brains and that stone walls have none so that it is not a fair fight between you and them however now let us think of the boy oh i will take him into my service replied the younger man and put him under my fellow to teach him all manner of wickedness said mr winkworth and therefore you shall do no such thing i will take him into mine where there's no blackguard with long whiskers to corrupt him i'll drill him in all the precise notions of an old bachelor's service and when he's fit for that he's fit for anything would you like to come and live with me my good boy and be my servant and the old gentleman's yellow countenance lighted up with a benevolent smile which made it look quite handsome i should like it very much said the boy eagerly and then perhaps i can sometimes see bessie i dare say you can though i know not why you call her bessie answered mr winkworth at all events i will not prevent you good heaven my dear charles how much happier and brighter and better a world it would be if we all continued to love our bessies through life as this poor boy seems to love his there do not stare so i mean by bessies the best friends of our youth not perhaps the mere corporeal flesh-and-blood friends but the pure ingenuous open-hearted candour of early years which would be a better friend to man if he did but cling to it with affection through life than all the worldly friends we gain in passing through existence shrewdness caution prudence selfishness wit or even wisdom but it is no use trying to indoctrinate you i see you only laugh at my most beautiful illustrations and think me the most foolish old man in the world not i indeed my dear sir replied charles marston i should only like some day to put your sarcasms when your spleen is moved and your fine sentiments when your enthusiasm is excited side by side in double columns as they print books and see how they would look when compared they would mutually balance each other and so come to nothing said the old gentleman 
but now my good boy jim what is your name besides jim brown said the boy i thought so exclaimed mr winkworth i could have sworn it jim always precedes brown and brown always follows jim it is a natural collocation how strange it is charles marston that particular names have such strange affinities for each other so that they appear to unite by the mere attraction of cohesion how extraordinary that his boys godfathers and godmothers without any preconcerted consideration of the subject were driven by a sort of inevitable necessity to call him jim they had indeed but one alternative and that was tom however tom is less dignified being frequently attached to a cat but now jim brown to proceed to business you shall either have your choice of getting into the dicky of that carriage and coming up with me to town to be fed lodged receive twenty pounds a year and wait upon an old gentleman with a yellow face or you shall stay here for a day or two longer to put your little affairs in order and follow me up to town for the same purpose the boy had listened with profound attention to mr winkworth's comments on his name though with a slight expression of wonder on his face but not of stupid wonder to his proposal he gave not less attention and then thought for a moment before he answered poor boy he had been early taught to think for circumstance is a hard master and often teaches severe lessons to youth only fitted for age i think i would rather stay for a day he replied at length for there are some things of my poor mother's which i should like to pack up and not have wasted well then there is a guinea for you to pay your journey up on the top of the coach said mr winkworth and now have you got such a thing as a pen that i may write down my address in london here's poor bessie's pen said the boy which she used to teach me to write with while with the well-worn stump a drop of ink in a little phial and a scrap of somewhat dirty paper mr winkworth wrote down his address in london charles marston gazed out of the cottage door upon the heath over which the purple shades of evening were falling fast who are those people passing across the common asked charles marston turning to the boy is there any great work going on here oh no sir replied jim those are people i dare say from the great meeting to petition for a reform in parliament which was to be held farther up on the common to-day the men were coming down all the morning and a bad set they were too for they walked straight through william small's garden trampled down all his beds and gathered all the flowers he said they were nothing but a set of thieves and pickpockets from london and they have done him damage for twenty pounds or more ha huh, charles that's bad said mr winkworth rising and folding up the paper on which he had written the address we had better get away before the shades of night are upon us i hope your whiskerandos has got the pistols with him i dare say he has replied charles marston and after a few words more exchanged with the boy they left the cottage and got into their carriage again mr winkworth however seemed to have thought better of his plan of operations especially when they got into the midst of a noisy and somewhat turbulent crowd one worthy member of which amused himself by throwing a stone at the head of the servant after all said the old gentleman i think it will be better to stop and dine and let these admirable reformers disperse charles marston was very willing to do anything that he liked 
for to say the truth his mind was very busy and wanted to be busy and as the reader is well aware when such is the case the spiritual part cares very little what the corporeal is about provided there be no interruption to its own operations they consequently drove to the inn where they had already stopped on their way to town ordered dinner and according to the usual process waited for it and ate it not exactly in silence for notwithstanding all that philosophers can say either mind or body will often carry on two operations at once and charles talked of indifferent subjects while his mind was occupied with one particular theme that is to say he talked mechanically for conversation is much more the effect of mere machinery than we think now internally he was occupied in considering what could be the motives of his uncle in the act he had just performed and he mingled therewith sundry doubts hesitations and inquiries with which it is needless to trouble the reader in a word thought mounted upon imagination went galloping away hither and thither while the mechanical part of mind remained at home taking care of the house in the meantime there was a good deal of noise and bustle in the inn which on their first visit had seemed as quiet a little place as any at which hungry travellers ever ate new-killed chickens or tough beefsteaks and the landlord thought fit to inform his respected guests in an apologetic tone that there were several of the orators of the great meeting just dispersed the spirit shakers of that day then dining in the house and several of their admirers waiting in the yard to cheer them as they went home now it is very natural for orators to be noisy first because the unruly member is their spoilt child and next because at least i never yet saw met with or heard of one of them with whom such was not the case they never consider any others than themselves mr winkworth and charles marston then were not the least surprised at the inn being noisy under such circumstances and the only effect was that they hurried their dinner in order to get out of it as soon as possible whenever the meal was concluded the horses were put to the lamps lighted for it was now quite dark crack went the whip round went the wheels and off went the carriage through the little town they drove quietly and easily enough and for some distance beyond it but at length awful backshot heaths spread around them true it might have been any other place on the earth for aught they knew the night was cloudy the stars were all in bed and fast asleep the moon would have nothing to do with bagshot heath that night and neither charles nor his companion had the least idea that they were in the midst of a place notorious for robbery some ten years before when a loud voice cried stop and the carriage was brought to a sudden halt it is probable that some of the gentlemen who anxious for an extension of the franchise had attended the meeting in the morning seeing a carriage indicative of wealth in the courtyard of the inn had thought that they might make their day's expedition serve two purposes and tend first to the expansion of their rights and liberties and secondly to a more equal distribution of property at all events some persons animated by the latter object appealed to the travellers pistol in hand to convey a portion of their superfluity to their more needy fellow-countrymen the servant at the back of the carriage however produced a pair of tubes very similar to those in the hands of the applicants and without much ceremony fired the shot was instantly returned but with what effect charles marston did not wait to see 
for seated on the right-hand side of the carriage which was opposite to that where the attack was made he put forth his hand the window on that side being down opened the door jumped out and applied a thick stick which he had with him to the head of a gentleman who was holding the horses the head was a hard one and probably not unaccustomed to such calls to forbearance but the blow was sufficiently well directed and forcibly applied to stretch him for one moment flat upon his back the next instant he was upon his feet again but not willing to take a second dose of the same rude medicine and totally forgetful of his hat which to say truth was not worthy of great solicitude he ran off across the heath as fast as he could go now running is the most infectious of all diseases and the two other gentlemen who were with him were seized almost simultaneously with the same malady charles marston did not think to pursue the fugitives but merely inquired of the servant who had by this time descended from his leathern box whether the shot the fellows had fired had hit him no sir replied the man in his peculiar affected tone the gentleman's line of fire was not well directed it merely damaged the crystal of the carriage i think and charles marston calling him a puppy in his own mind went round to the other side got in and ordered the postboy to drive on for a moment or two mr winkworth was completely silent but at length he remarked in a low quiet tone well i do think mr charles marston that i am a very unfortunate man and that my left shoulder is a very unfortunate shoulder both being subject to suffer by encounters with highwaymen whether syrian or english mohammedan or christian why my dear sir you don't mean to say you are wounded exclaimed charles marston i do indeed replied mr winkworth and within one inch of the spot where i was wounded before luckily it is lower down and on the outside so it is only in the flesh i fancy but i am not obliged to them nevertheless i was just stooping a little forward to see what was going on when the ball came crashing through the glass and into my shoulder charles marston was now as may well be supposed under a good deal of anxiety for his friend but mr winkworth would not consent to stop at the next inn longer than was necessary to ascertain that the bleeding was not great charles insisted upon putting on another pair of horses to the carriage to accelerate their progress and in about two hours and a half they reached the door of their hotel there a surgeon was immediately sent for and after what seemed to charles a very long delay the man of healing entered the room End of chapter thirteen